to Sixth Four, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. I'm your host, Bradley Scott, and each episode I invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a Kiwi tech organization's journey. Today, Xero is an often cited example of success in the New Zealand tech sector. With nearly 2.5 million paying customers, annual recurring revenues of nearly 900 million, and a market capitalization of 20 billion, Xero is now a local SaaS juggernaut. However, back in 2009, with just 6,000 customers and 1 million of revenue, the success was far from guaranteed. It was then that today's guest, one of Xero's first product managers, joined the team. And over the next six years, he had a front row seat to see customers grow to nearly 500,000 and annual revenues surpass 150 million. My name's Andrew Tokely. People call me Tokes. Uh, it's a abbreviation of my last name rather than a habit. I have been involved in product for uh, probably officially since 2009. Uh, when I started at Zero, before that I was much more on the technology side of of the game. Interestingly, nobody really knew what a product manager was then, so I wasn't actually called that. Uh, I don't know when that title actually came about. Ironically, I don't think I was ever a product manager. I started with a title of product development manager, which was really a title. I think they just made it up. Alistair Gregg, I think, he's a smart guy, thought, oh, that sounds good. He wanted to do development management. I wanted him to do more product stuff, so let's manage them together and create a product development manager role. My role did change over, over the years, and it, it, I, kept, um, I kept ownership of the core zero business product for a long time, and that was, that was important to me because that was the flagship product. It got the most attention. It was the most strategically important, and that, that made me feel great to be part of uh, the success of that product. By the time I left, after about six years, I think we would have had around six or seven product owners, um, maybe the first product managers who were starting to manage those product owners. And the, the part of the organization I was looking after, we, I think we probably had seven or eight product teams uh, around the core product that I was leading. Zero was founded in 2006 and listed as a public company very early in its life in June of 2007 with under 200 paying customers. However, in those early years, it was growing rapidly, and Zero claimed 1,400 customers by May 2008. Shortly after this point, Tox joined the team. Tox, can you describe where the company was at when you joined? When I started, they hadn't really achieved... Well, they'd achieved a level of of viable product for a very narrow use case. What was fascinating to me was everybody loved us. So we didn't feel any pressure to rock out all these other accounting features that uh, we knew were necessary for businesses to operate at a higher level. Um, And I remember the day when we started getting our first negative um, feedback, feedback going, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about being able to do this? What about this uh, permutation of business, the way they operate, the way I operate? And, And so we, the prioritization became a lot more difficult 
an inevitable point in any product's lifestyle is you're not going to impress all the people all the time. And so there was a lot of promise for what it might be at the beginning that people in those early adopter people who took it on were willing to wait for. And then we got more awareness in the market. So you got some people coming who maybe weren't as tolerant as the early adopters and who decided that um, they all had the impression that the product was fully baked when they came on board and then they discovered, oh, you don't do credit notes, you don't debit notes, debit notes, you know, all this sort of stuff that they just expected it did as part of a mature business. And it wasn't all that. And so all the rah-rah that the media maybe had picked up was from those early adopters who were happy with, I don't know, a website that just opened. Uh, and then you get these later adopters who are going, well, I thought it was a proper accounting package and MYB do this and that, why don't you do it too? Uh, without realizing that we had a lot of catching up to do. Bankrec was actually one of the, uh, interestingly, one of the few examples in the early days where we really solved a problem in an innovative way. I, I would argue that in the early days of Zero, most of the other features were somewhat functionary in that, you know, GST return has certain fields on it. And sure, you need to fill that, you need to be able to extract them from the data that you collect. And so there was this, we weren't building Instagram, right? We weren't building Facebook, um, but we were trying to create those necessary data inputs and outputs in a in a in a, in a with a good experience behind it. And so we had a lot of emphasis on the experience, and from that was driven a lot by the design team. So we had a good alliance with the design team as we built out our product capability. And I think it was only really later uh, that we started to mature our product practice to think beyond the function. Despite that possibly simplistic approach to building the Zero product initially, the company succeeded nonetheless. Between 2009 and 2010, revenues tripled and tripled again in 2011. Tokes, what were the threats that Zero faced at the time and how did you navigate through them? In the New Zealand and Australia market, possibly the most likely result that would have been negative would have been Myo waking up and maybe doing a little bit more than they had. And so they they really had won in that desktop market and had done really well pre-Web sort of 2.0 times. And it would have been a bad outcome if they'd started to wake up and smell the coffee a little bit earlier. And that didn't happen. And we, so we were given a lot of time to, uh, to get ahead of them. Uh, we'd changed from trying to sell directly to small businesses and we've proven the accounting model the accounting channel is the best way to to get customers and so that strategy of going through the accounting channel was one that worked in New Zealand and our strategy was to repeat that in Australia and to do that ahead of investing too deeply in more markets offshore in particular the UK and the US we're starting to get in our we're in our radar but further on and so we were quite clear about seeing the same traction in Australia before going wider. And that dictated the type of product that we built, which specialised regional features we built and didn't build, and the sort of traction we wanted to see before moving further afield. Our success in putting design and experience ahead of, 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 of a lot of things was a good, a good strategy and was different to other players in the market. This was pretty early on in web as well. You know, 2009, you know, yeah, we, we were only just starting to put transactional websites together. It was, you know, they were there, but it was, the technology was really quite new. And so 
we were very ahead of the game in terms of creating experience on the web that most people expected from a desktop um, but didn't even know was possible uh, in, in the browser. So in retrospect, what do you believe the key product strategy, product roadmap, and product design decisions were that led to your success? Once we realized that selling direct to small business wasn't the right approach to, to get the scale and growth we needed, we had to make our product appealing to accountants as well. I say as well, but actually I still think to this date it appeals to accountants more than it appeals to small business. You know, as our sales channel of you know, that had proved successful, they needed to be strong advocates of the product. And in many cases, we we might have said we were building a product for small business, but it had to work for their accountants. So we somewhat reluctantly, I have to say, from the product team, created features and prioritized features that we knew were going to be important to accountants. I was worried that they were going to think that Zero was going to take business away from them because we were making accounting so easy for small businesses that it would put accountants out of work, right? And so we were talking about this potential conflict of interest, and and they said to me, "Oh, look, you know, I don't let I don't let my clients anywhere near Zero." And I was like, "What? Oh, yeah, no, no, I don't want them screwing it up. I I, I love Zero. It's great for me because I can get in there and I know how to do manual journals and lock dates and." reconciliations and all this stuff i just i'd rather they just give me a box of receipts i'll, I'll work it out for them right and so I don't, every time they go in there they screw it up and i have to i have to correct stuff and so that made me think well maybe we've maybe we've done too good a job of making this really appeal to accountants and maybe there's still work to do to make it appeal to non-accountants and maybe there's still an opportunity to create a different skew of the product that is very much targeted towards someone who doesn't understand accounting at all um, but is uh, still wants to be compliant and still wants to be able to get paid for the services they do and still needs to pay their people and still needs to make sure they keep record of the things that are important, right? And so that would have been a very different lens through which to look at this problem. By 2013, Zero had started increasing its investment in the US market. And by 2014, it appeared as if the US market was the leading aspect of the company's strategy. The incumbent in the US market was Intuit. Intuit boasted 8,000 employees and revenues of nearly 4 billion US dollars, making this a David versus Goliath battle. Their desktop accounting software, QuickBooks, was a virtual monopoly in the small business accounting market, but their shift to QuickBooks Online, their cloud successor product, was still in its early days. If there ever is to be an MBA case study about zero, the subsequent defeat to Intuit in the US market would surely be a must-read chapter. Tokes, what did you observe during this period? So we were always going to be a global player. Any English-speaking country was fair game. And we obviously saw the US as a massive opportunity to grow at a scale that we couldn't even imagine, right? And that was from very early on. That was always in our sights that we would go into the US. The first somewhat... Uh, naive expectation was well there were there were two things that stood in our way when we first put our foot in that water right one is that the channel 
that had worked so well in Australia and New Zealand, like selling through accountants and getting them to recommend zero into their clients, didn't work in this, it didn't work the same way. The accountants in the US were far more reluctant to change and try something new. They had for a very long time been used to a very a strong incumbent that had been there for a long time and had tentacles everywhere. So that was our first thing. We thought the accounting channel would work. It didn't work as well. So the second thing we thought was, well, we bowled Myob over. That was pretty easy. We'll do the same with Intuit. They're another old-fashioned desktop-based Luddite that they won't see us coming. Um, and that was true for Myob. They didn't see us coming, and we, we, we did really well, and they didn't respond very quickly. But Intuit responded very quickly and like you might imagine a wounded bear would respond uh they didn't take kindly to it at all and very quickly doubled down their investment on their web online product and i would have thought and i remember going to conferences in the us and feeling somewhat disappointed that we couldn't offer as much as the Intuit web product was now starting to offer. And this was maybe a year or so after we'd entered. And maybe a third one we misunderstood was the complexity of a country of 300 million people and 50 odd states, right? Like, so the differences in the different sales tax regimes across the country um, was something that we probably could have been more targeted with the types of businesses we tried to appeal to. We didn't appreciate just how sensitive they are to anything that didn't sound like it came from America. So I used to do all the voiceovers for our videos and reasonably early on that my accent could not be online. I think we just naively thought, well, we're amazing. They'll love us just like everyone else does. Um, And it didn't work out that way. So given your proximity to it all, you must have some learnings from that experience. What are those? Don't treat the US as just one market. That would be the first thing. It's it's a big country and you need to be very clear about how you're going to enter the market. And I think the temptation is you do just see it as one big market and go, yeah, yeah, we could be like a million people. The total addressable market for our product is everyone in America. But, you know, like that that's um, not necessarily the right way to go about it. What we did do right was having people on the ground in the US who could do some of that research for us to help bring that intel back. There was always this demand to try and have in-market product teams to build the product that that market needed, but we resisted that for a long time. And I think I still think that's the right approach. I still think it's the efficiency gains of having a centralized product capability or development capability in particular. I think unless you can really break it off and make it truly independent, outweigh um, putting, you know, having teams working on the same product in market, competing with one another, working on the same code base. So Tux, you've had the better part of six years to look back on your time at zero. If you could do it all again, how would you go about things differently? When I look back now with a much more mature product brain and having seen and experienced things that work better. I feel one of the missed opportunities still at zero now that I look back, and it certainly happened when I was there, we were largely building purchase orders, invoices, credit notes, GST return, badge. They were very clear features that you need to have in an accounting app. 
we didn't spend enough time in those years thinking about how those things fit together in the workflow of a business. So, for example, I now use Xero more than I ever used it as a product manager because I run my own business off it. And, for example, the mental arithmetic and gymnastics I need to do to um, to do certain bank rec where I've got to pull in a receipt from over here, I've got to decide whether it's entertainment that can be taxed if I have to deduct it, you know, if it's some of it's non-deductible. There's some account regional accounting stuff that I have to remember and know how to do. I have to be somewhat of an, an accountant brain to be able to use zero. Not having product people representing at our largest conferences around the world was a big mistake, and they started putting marketing people on the stage or people who weren't as close to product. I think the audiences recognised that and that change, uh, and I think it de-emphasised the importance of the product leadership roles in the company, and that had been a big part of how we would, how we had scaled by creating strong, valued leadership throughout the organisation, not just rod at the top shouting off feature names and engineers building it. You know, we had really respected leadership. Xerocons were Xero's annual customer conferences, their version of Dreamforce or AWS reInvent, except the primary audience was accountants and bookkeepers. They were often described more like a rock concert than what one would expect of a gathering of number crunches. It was one of the many innovative approaches that Xero employed to marketing its products. Tokes, what did you observe worked well and not so well in Xero's approach to marketing? Marketing out was very good. Like they really understood the value proposition of Xero as a product. They had their own capability. There was never any conflict of resources. Very quickly, we dedicated resource to their part of the business. So they had their own front-end developers and WordPress developers so they could do their thing. So they were great at positioning and presenting the Xero brand and the Xero value proposition. I think that was real strength. What they didn't do, and it's not necessarily because they didn't want to, um, and we didn't push it enough, they didn't do product marketing in that. They didn't bring Intel back to the product team. They didn't identify markets that were untapped. They didn't necessarily um, interact with us to say, hey, we're, you know, we're leaking from our funnel that we're bringing to you and it's, you know, for some reason they're not staying. You know, there was a little bit of talk around that about the about the conversion process and we certainly thought about it. But, but it was only later, probably three or four years in, that we actually got somebody from marketing who had spent a considerable amount of time with the product team. And so I think that, that was starting to improve to try and create that two-way balance, not just, hey, product team, what's coming out next week? What, what can we talk about? But much more about the um, understanding the value proposition before we built it, you know, which type of customers would this appeal to and, and for what reason, you know, what would the upshot be if they use this feature well for their business? Data science teams have to specialise in product. I think you can't just have data science and it's available to the whole business because, Marketing is close, often marketing is close to the CEO, closer to the mouthpiece of the business, and they'll want some fancy stats coming out there to say how many billions of dollars have gone through the system that they can put in the next press release. You know, the next funding raise, they'll need to get data to support a funding raise, right? So those data scientists can be put to good use on things that are largely irrelevant to product um, and not do the deep insights work that you need from a product team. 
And so that was a good move to actually specialize data science into the product team and embed it in product rather than having it as an agency to the company. And we always lost to marketing. In 2014, Zero's annual report boasted it had doubled the size of its team to 758 employees. And it would go on to double its engineering team size again for the third year in succession. Tokes, how did Zero manage to grow that fast without losing the better part of its culture and what made the organization a success? We definitely needed from a capability point of view to build product to keep up with demand. We were now we were a global product um, and needed to create global capability. And so part of that growth would have been building local capability. Uh, initially in Australia, uh, we, we actually didn't just have developers and product in New Zealand anymore. We actually started to build that out in Australia and in the US, around the US payroll product. And that was really important to do that in a really considered way because we'd resisted doing that. We wanted to be a development and HQ, build the core value propositions in in one place where everyone could make decisions that were balanced across the market forces rather than being swayed one way or the other. So we, the core team stayed in New Zealand for a long time. And, but we did look for opportunities. We couldn't grow fast enough in New Zealand to keep up with demand. So we looked for opportunities to build modules or separate product SKUs in other markets so that they could operate somewhat independently from the rest of the engineering capability and the develop and the product capability. So in the US it was payroll. In Australia they had fixed assets and um, some other stuff I can't remember. Um, but things that we didn't really need to collaborate. You know, we often think collaboration is amazing, right? Like you've got to be able to collaborate. Well, it's better if you don't have to. You move a lot faster if you don't have to collaborate. And that's what we try to do across those different offices in terms of product and engineering capability. Sure, there was needs to collaborate in some ways, but we wanted to minimize that to as little as possible so they could get on and do their own thing. And in fact, to the extent that they even chose in America, they chose their own front-end framework, completely separate to our front-end framework that we're building design libraries for and they could have just picked off the shelf. And they go, well, we don't use that technology. We can't hire anyone in this local market who knows how to use it. Um, we're going we're gonna to hire some angular developers or something i don't know what they were using and they took the hit of having to replicate you know the front end stack to make it look and feel the same for an end user but from a development point of view it was a completely different stack and that's fine like i meant that we didn't have to keep them up to date with the other framework and if they wanted to wear that then then they could do it and uh didn't really have a problem with that our our product organization was a pure reflection of strategy and it's another example of where nobody spoke strategy but it it was evidence in everything we do, right? So the fact that we had a commitment to building payroll in the US was represented by the fact that there was a team in the US building payroll, right? The fact that we were going to make a punt in the you know, personal banking uh, space, for you know, despite the fact that it didn't work so well, you know, there was a dedicated team around that and they had their own resources and things. Um, the fact that we couldn't scale in New Zealand, our resources meant we had to go offshore. So there was a strategic imperative that if we wanted to grow and be the massive multi-billion dollar company we knew we could be, we couldn't constrain ourselves to the New Zealand market. There simply aren't enough people in New Zealand to form a team of that size and that expert. And it wasn't even skills, right? We have the skills, just not the volume of people. So we had to find ways of breaking the product down in such a way to minimize that dependency, to manage it but to enable those different satellite teams to, to work somewhat autonomously. 
My reflections are that Xero was ahead of its time in thinking about scaling culture and teams deliberately. But unfortunately, none of that was captured in such a way that would allow it to be easily replicated by others. A gap that's since somewhat been filled, and I would steer anyone interested in the topic to the book Team Topologies. In closing, Tokes, what is the summary of your reflections on your time at Zero and where the organisation is now? On my journey, hugely grateful that I was there at the right time, the right place. Learned a lot about leadership, about working with people, about building products and working at all across the business. I, I love that. That launched my career as it is today. As I see it now, I still think people don't know how lucky they are. Zero is an amazing place to work, even at the size it is now. And I'm sure there are people in there who go, oh, my God, there's so many politics. And it's like, but in terms of product and engineering autonomy and ability to make a difference in their fields, there are not, I don't know many companies that empower their people to the extent that they do at Zero. I'd like to say a big thanks to Andrew Tokley, our first 6-4 guest. There is much of our discussion left on the cutting room floor, and if you're interested in our full interview, you can listen to that also. It contains some material that may form the genesis of further 6-4 episodes about Zero's journey, including the early days from 2007 to 2009 and Zero's multi-year migration to public cloud. This has been 6-4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings from Kiwi tech organizations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know, and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.